What is Bob Dylan? What is Bob Dylan? This is the 10th episode in an ongoing series of broadcasts about the life and work of Bob Dylan. 10 episodes feels a little bit like a milestone, so raise a glass to yourselves for getting this far. This series is free, but it's dependent on an audience, and the larger and more varied of an audience, the more resonance the project has. So if you have a minute, please share a link to the website, to friends, or post on social media. We're about to take a look at perhaps the most shocking period of Dylan's entire career. Nearly 40 years later, it's still a mysterious and utterly surprising moment. This is a Bob Dylan Primer, Episode 10, A Voice in the Wilderness. We left off last episode as the curtain fell on the last waltz, the farewell live concert by the band, with Dylan appearing along with a host of other guest artists. And that's in the fall of 1976, which is an interesting time in America. Jimmy Carter is elected president that same month, and it feels like the nightmare that is Watergate and Richard Nixon has finally been put to rest. Of course, the unknown future would come to teach us many surprising things, but then, in 1976 and 1977, there is a feeling in the country of openness, of tolerance, at least more than we'd felt for a while. So now, in 1977, I want to take a minute to look at what was happening in pop music. A lot was changing. The big acts, what's now thought of as classic rock, like Dylan, Neil Young, The Stones, were making music, but it was a little fringy. It wasn't occupying the center lane anymore. Bruce Springsteen made a pretty big splash with Born to Run in 1975, but he hadn't released anything new since then as he was tied up in a publishing dispute. But there were a couple of different things going on that were attracting a lot of energy. Punk rock, bands like the Ramones and the Clash, was starting to take hold. And what was called New Wave was starting to get a lot of traction too. At that time, that was bands like Elvis Costello, Talking Heads, Blondie, etc. Also, disco and funk were making a big impact with a lot of energy coming out of those camps. The pop charts were full of mostly pretty lightweight stuff. Fleetwood Mac, Rod Stewart Solo, and the biggest selling act was the Eagles, who released Hotel California in 1977. So, the cherished artists of the rock singer-songwriter tradition and the supergroups of the 60s and early 70s were a little off to the side, and Dylan didn't record anything during the entire year of 1977. And then, in the spring of 1978, Dylan had a new batch of songs, and he went into the studio in Santa Monica, California with a pretty big band that included some of the Rolling Thunder tour musicians, also Steve Douglas on saxophone and Ian Wallace on drums, and a handful of female backup singers and recorded a new album over the course of about a week. Just before this new album came out, Dylan started a tour in Los Angeles that June, and those shows came to be called the Vegas Shows, because Dylan was wearing stage makeup and some sparkly, glittery outfits, and there were three glamorous backup singers on stage along with a large band and a saxophone prominently figured in the sound, and the arrangements were, I guess, Flowery might be one way to put it. 
So people thought it was pretty anti-rock and roll. And again, remember, punk rock and new wave were really starting to have an impact. And so once again, it seemed like maybe Dylan was a little out of touch. And then the record came out. And it was called Street Legal. And the sound of the record was a little bit of a mishmash. And it wasn't very well recorded. And no one paid too much attention to it. Street Legal is a kind of outlier. It comes after this very fertile period of touring and releasing Planet Waves, Blood on the Tracks, and Desire, the whole Rolling Thunder extravaganza. And it comes right before Dylan's about to undergo some major, major changes again. And so the album came out, and there weren't any hit singles on it, and so it didn't have too much of an impact. A lot of Dylan fans didn't like the record, and the common complaint you'll hear is about how badly the songs were recorded. But Street Legal is an album that definitely deserves a second listen, and repeated listenings by those who may have dismissed it. Hearing it several times in preparation for this broadcast, I would say there's not a bad song on the record. The songs are really unusual in terms of their lyrical content and structure. They don't fit the mold of classic pop songs, or classic Dylan songs, or folk songs, or blues numbers. They're mostly mid-tempo, and they seem to start right off in the middle of an idea. They don't necessarily build to a climax and then fade, and the lyrics are fairly mysterious for the most part. The only really straightforward song on the record is called New Pony, which is a straight blues, and it might be the nastiest song Dylan's ever recorded. I'm using nasty here in the sense of down-and-dirty sexuality. One of the things that I try and do in these broadcasts is not come with too many preconceived notions. Obviously, I've been thinking about Dylan for a long time, so I have thoughts about a lot of stuff. But what I try to do is listen to the music fresh that we're talking about and see if I can come up with some new ways of thinking about it. And so listening to Street Legal now, it's kind of a wonderful record, and I feel like it's probably the most underrated Dylan record. I do think people are starting to come around a little bit in terms of how it's perceived. I just get the sense from different things I've heard that some people are starting to listen or re-listen to the album and maybe are coming to a new appreciation for it. But when Street Legal first came out, the album confounded people. And those initial reactions set thinking about the album on a certain path from which it's never really diverted. There hasn't been enough collective energy re-evaluating the album to change the thinking about the record. I think there are a few reasons why the album turned people off or didn't register much. The first has to do with the moment that the album came out. It was the summer of 78, which was a time that punk and new wave were really starting to impact radio, and also critics in a big way. So critics were really not interested in the old stuff too much. There were all these new bands that were making great music. And if you consider listening to early Tom Petty records or Blondie or Talking Head stuff in the summer of 1978, and compare that to listening to Street Legal, it's not really a fair fight. It was hard to embrace Street Legal back then with all of this other dynamic and fresh-sounding material coming out around the same time. The other thing about the record is that people think it was recorded horribly and that it sounds bad from a technical standpoint. And this is a slam that has followed the album around. I'm not sure what I think about that. I definitely think the songs could have been better served by a stronger mix, but I don't think it's so much sound issues with the recording or the mastering, I think it might have more to do with the fact that the arrangements of the songs are super dense. They're more musical, that isn't really the right term, but 
more musical than Dylan's usual backing. In the past, Dylan mostly used instruments to kind of support the lyric line that he was taking. Blonde on Blonde certainly has some broader musical things going on and textures, but with Street Legal, every song is like a mini musical. There's all these textures and melodies and background vocal licks within each tune, and these musical motifs are integral to how the songs communicate and how they're processed in the mind of the listener. That may have been a lot to ask of the audience in 1978, and that's another reason why people didn't pay all that much attention and didn't, didn't really relate strongly to the album. And the third thing that I think hurt the reception and perception of Street Legal, and I think this might be the biggest reason of all, is a single lyric line from the song, Is Your Love in Vain? Dylan sings the line, Can you cook and sow and make flowers grow? And that line turned many, many people off. Obviously, especially women and anyone with even a slight feminist bent was kind of revolted by that line. I'm not going to try and defend the line, but I think that within the context of the song and Dylan's work, it probably was supposed to mean something different than what people heard. Still, it really offended a lot of people, and I think it kind of soured people's taste for the entire album. Anyway, it's time to listen to Street Legal again. It is a wonderful record with a lot of mysterious and engaging music. Now, hang on tight. Things are about to get very strange. You think about Dylan's previous mind-popping transitions, going electric at Newport, going country in Nashville. These tectonic shifts pale next to the twist that Dylan is about to throw down. In the spring and early summer of 1979, there were a few tiny indications that Dylan might be undergoing some kind of turning to religion. But nobody paid it too much mind, figuring it was just Dylan being enigmatic. And then, in August 1979, Dylan released an album called Slow Train Coming. And it did seem to be much more religious in tone, and specifically Christian, than anything Dylan had done before. And most of the songs on the album had female gospel singers singing backup, so that certainly added to the religious feel. The record is an absolute barn burner musically. It kicks as hard as anything Dylan ever recorded, and there are some fantastic songs on it. It was produced by the legendary Jerry Wexler, who worked with Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin and a few pretty good rhythm sections. And the sound of the record is just pristine, in complete contrast to Street Legal, which preceded it. Before the Slow Train Coming Sessions, Dylan's engineer played him a song called Sultans of Swing by a new band called Dire Straits. So Dylan brought the guitar player from Dire Straits, Mark Knopfler, in for the sessions. And Knopfler's playing on Slow Train Coming is pretty inspired. The first side of the record has four songs. Gotta Serve Somebody, Precious Angel, I Believe in You, and Slow Train. And you could make the case that this is the strongest album side Dylan's made since maybe Highway 61 Revisited. Side two starts off with two songs that are a little less strong, Gonna Change My Way of Thinking and Do Right to Me Baby. Although, Change My Way of Thinking has a pretty mighty groove going on. And then comes a song called Man Gave Names to All the Animals, which is almost like a nursery rhyme with sort of biblical undertones. But up to this point, the religious content of the record is more in the feel and the tone. There's nothing all that overt. And it almost seems like Man Gave Names is the last song on the record. But no, there's one more song, and it's called 
when he returns. And the last lines of that song are, of every earthly plan that be known to man, he is unconcerned. He's got plans of his own to set up his throne when he returns. Nothing ambiguous about that. Either Dylan has experienced a religious conversion or he's putting on a big phony act of pretending to believe that Jesus Christ is headed back this way. Both of those possibilities are difficult for most of Dylan's audience to process in the summer and fall of 1979. So most people listen to the new record with a mixture of appreciation and apprehension. And again, Dylan isn't considered a primary mover and shaker in music at that moment. So most people don't even pay that much attention. And then, that November, Dylan plays a series of shows, starting with the 14-night stand at the Fox Warfield Theater in San Francisco, then four shows in Los Angeles at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, and then a handful of other dates across the West. And I was at one of those Santa Monica shows, had good seats, but I couldn't get any friends to accompany me, which was another sign of Dylan's place in the rock star firmament at that moment. And if people weren't quite sure about Dylan's commitment to his newfound religion or what exactly he was thinking, these shows blew the lid right off any doubt that Dylan was in the throes of a full-on religious transformation. The crowd in Santa Monica was unlike anything I'd ever seen before at a rock concert. There were the usual plaid-shirted young men and young women dressed all sorts of ways, but there were also a lot of what back then we disparagingly called Jesus freaks. They wore a lot of denim, like the rockers, but theirs was embroidered with slogans and pictures of Jesus Christ. And when Dylan came out on stage, they exhorted him to preach, Bobby, preach. It was surreal, to say the least. The shows opened up with one of the backup vocalists from Dylan's band, a woman named Regina Havis, coming out and delivering a kind of sermon, a speech about Christian faith. And then a couple of other singers and a piano player would come out and play about a half an hour's worth of straight gospel songs. And I think the feeling of most people in the audience was like, oh, okay, this is the religious part of the show, and then Dylan's going to come out and do his songs. But when Dylan emerged, it ramped up to a full-on revival tent show, with Dylan interspersing the songs, which were all religious-themed, with these long speeches. He was literally preaching to the audience like an old-time circuit rider. Dylan was talking about things like the end of the world and Armageddon and how Jesus Christ was headed our way. It was unvarnished fundamentalism. And most in the audience who were not born again were pissed off listening to this and they yelled angrily back at the stage. And of course, Dylan went right on, unperturbed. And these sermons are findable online if you search a little bit. But I just want to quote a few lines from the first show in Santa Monica. Dylan stood on stage and said, We don't care about the atom bomb, any of that, because we know this world is going to be destroyed, and Christ will set up his kingdom in Jerusalem for a thousand years. When the lion lies down with the lamb, you know the lion will eat straw on that day. And if any man have not the spirit of Christ in him, he is a slave to bondage. You know bondage. I know you all know bondage. So you'll need something just a little bit tough to hang on to. The name of this song is called Hanging On to a Solid Rock, Made Before the Foundation of the World. And if you don't have that to hang on to, you'd better look into it. 
And then the band kicked into a blistering rendition of the song Solid Rock. This was my first experience coming face to face in a live concert with one of Dylan's major transformations. And I have to admit, I wasn't really very open to the whole thing. Coming from a place of loving the Dylan who questioned authority, who never took the easy path, who celebrated the mysteries of our existence, maybe the whole thing should have been easier to swallow. But it wasn't easy. I wasn't turned off or anything like that. It was more like, okay, I think I'll step back for a minute. Of course, still continuing to try and listen and to try and get to the essence the whole time. And listening now to this material, there's a lot of musical bone to gnaw on and a lot of really great music. Lots of study has been devoted to what actually transpired with Dylan as he underwent what seemed to be a very sudden and radical transformation. And Dylan himself, in both interviews and in his book Chronicles, has talked about what he says happened to him. And the gospel version seems to be that Dylan had the experience of being physically touched by Jesus Christ. And then, as he processed this life-changing moment, he became immersed in studying the Bible and surrounding himself with not only musicians who had a strong Christian faith, but also was involved with several different women at this time who were extremely religious. And this all sort of nurtured the outrageously unequivocal statement of faith that Dylan expressed in concert and on his records during these years. It's interesting that two other well-known pop music figures, Van Morrison and Patti Smith, put out albums in 1979 that also had some religious undertones, and there certainly seemed to be a growing acceptance for some kinds of organized spirituality in the collective ether. But nothing was like the full-on Bible belting that Dylan unleashed that year. In the middle of this tour, which started in 1979 and continued into 1980, Dylan and the touring band entered the same studio in Muscle Shoals, where Dylan recorded Slow Train Coming, again with Jerry Wexler producing. And Dylan recorded a set of songs that he had been playing live with this touring band. In June 1980, a little less than a year after Slow Train Coming, Dylan released the album from these sessions, which was called Saved. Because of the way it was recorded using road-tested arrangements and a well-rehearsed band, the album almost sounds like it was recorded live, with a terrifically present feel but the album cover is almost the most striking thing about the record. Although later versions of the album use a painting of Dylan performing on stage, the original cover features a primitive, garishly colored illustration of the hand of God reaching down as five human hands reach up to connect with the Lord. It looks like a flyer from some backwoods revival show, and the album itself lives up to the promise of the cover. In a move that's so Dylan-esque, He kicks off the record with a gospel-drenched version of the country spiritual, A Satisfied Mind, a song that had been covered by the likes of the great Porter Wagner, who took it to number one on the country charts, Ella Fitzgerald, and even the Birds, who released their version in 1965. So Dylan was tipping his hat backwards to these earlier traditions of pure country, jazz, and folk rock, while tossing that same hat into the deep well of gospel and religious music. When that song, A Satisfied Mind, is over, the second song, the title track, Saved, begins. And the first verse of Saved goes like this. I was blinded by the devil, born already ruined, stone cold dead as I stepped out of the womb. By his grace I have been touched, by his word I have been healed, 
by his hand I've been delivered, by his spirit I've been sealed. The saved album is several notches above Slow Train coming in its religious fervor and intensity. Hellfire and brimstone for the most part. It's an unambiguous testament to believing the words of the Bible, which doesn't really jibe with our sense of logical fact, and it's hard to reconcile Dylan's impervious devotion to the idea that Jesus Christ was on his way back to save those brave souls on earth who are still worthy of salvation. What are we to make today of this time in Dylan's journey? For me, the thing that makes this moment so powerful is that it continues to evade easy analysis or understanding. And what we're left with, as always, is the music. And the music is strong and passionate and thought-provoking and moving. And maybe that's enough. Maybe that's plenty. Looking back at these gospel records with a hindsight of nearly 40 years' time, it's pretty striking how fast and total Dylan's transformation was at that moment. Yes, there are lots of religious-flavored breadcrumbs that Dylan dropped earlier here and there along his trail before this moment, but it still feels much more as if a lightning bolt came down and torched the spot where Dylan happened to be standing, and when the smoke cleared, Dylan was born again. One of the central mysteries of this period is how quickly and completely Dylan absorbed the language of fundamentalist preaching and the music of gospel, not unlike how he went from being a little Richard acolyte to the second coming of Woody Guthrie in a matter of months, and not unlike how, once Dylan grew tired of wearing the folk mantle, he was able to shuff it off nearly instantaneously and switch over to an amalgam of beat and surrealist language. Dylan was able to take all of these different languages and turn them into an unmediated expression of his own mind and soul. And he certainly has continued to do that all the way through. And maybe that's the core of Dylan's genius, that he's able to so immerse his sensibility so deeply into these multiple forms. Although it might not seem like it at first glance, for me, this is the farthest thing from imitation. I don't know what word best describes this process, absorption, transmutation, maybe transubstantiation, which in normal usage means the process by which the bread and wine of the Christian communion service becomes the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ, even though they still look like bread and wine. Let's leave it there for now and turn to Dylan's next record, which is called Shot of Love. Shot of Love, which was released in 1981, two years after Slow Train Coming and one year after Saved, is considered the third and concluding album of Dylan's so-called religious trilogy, and it certainly continues a lot of the themes and concerns and styles of Slow Train Coming and Save. But it also seems a clear transition point, as the songs are not as firmly entrenched in religious language as those earlier two albums. One song on the record is called In the Summertime, and in the way that so many religious and gospel tunes can be read as either being addressed to a higher power or being addressed to a down-to-earth loved one, In the Summertime could be heard as a bittersweet farewell to a cherished lover, or it could be Dylan taking leave of his ironclad devotion to his Savior Jesus Christ, with gratitude but moving on nonetheless. Shot of Love was recorded in Los Angeles with some different musicians and a different producer as Slow Train and Saved. And although Shot of Love doesn't have the 
fiery precision of slow train coming, nor the furious passion of saved, I find it a more pleasurable album to listen to. It's got a raucous live sound and the songs are good. One song on the record that sticks out is called Lenny Bruce, and it's a slow, dirge-like hymn to the troubled comedian. I can still remember hearing the song for the first time and remember laughing out loud because Dylan's tone is so solemn and the lyrics seemed ridiculous to me back in 1981. But it's a really compelling song that gets under your skin over time. It's quite moving, and it's one that Dylan has chosen to perform live somewhat frequently over the years. Dylan rarely ends up an album with less than a really strong song or statement. And the last song on Shot of Love is called Every Grain of Sand, which is on one level a kind of closing prayer to the period Dylan's just come through. But it's also a major song in Dylan's career that looks back at his earlier work and forward to what might be coming in the future. Dylan recorded a demo version of the song in 1980, which was released on the first bootleg series release, Volumes 1 through 3. On that version, Dylan's voice is a little weak and cracks a few times, but it's a beautifully vulnerable performance, and I've included it on the Spotify playlist for this episode, which is on Spotify and called A Bob Dylan Primer Episode 10. Also included on that playlist is Volume 13 of the Bootleg series, which is called Trouble No More, and which focuses on the years we've talked about in this episode. There are many outtakes from the Slow Train Coming, Saved, and Shot of Love sessions, but the bulk of the set is comprised of the live recordings from 1979 to 1981, and you can quickly grasp how inspired Dylan was to be presenting these new songs with this kick-ass group of musicians backing him up. So now we're about to leave 1981, and at this point, Bob Dylan has been writing and performing music for 20 years. He sung songs drenched in folk protest, surrealist poetry, country and western, rock and roll, and gospel. And I realize now that the seemingly drastic shifts of persona and sound that Dylan undertakes might be nothing more, but also nothing less, than his artistic method. So that he's never changing just for the sake of changing, but because his internal, creative motor needs new roads to ride, so that he can continue to bring us new vistas to look at and absorb. Continuing with this wobbly metaphor, the car is the same old ride, and Dylan is always behind the wheel picking up miles and songs as he rolls along. Next episode, we'll take a look at how Bob Dylan navigated the shifting sands of the 1980s and how his influence continued to wane throughout these years of Ronald Reagan and the Pet Shop Boys. Thank you for listening. And if you'd like to hear some of the music reference, please check out the public playlist I created on Spotify under the name A Bob Dylan Primer. Also, please visit our website at abobdylanprimer.com to lend your support and find cool supporting content about Bob Dylan, including links to some amazing stuff. That's abobdylanprimer, P-R-I-M-E-R dot com. And thank you very much. <laughs>